，鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Welcome back to the Taiwan Take. I'm your host Emily Wai Wu. Today we speak with French film director Rashid Hami, whose 2023 autobiographical film For My Country tells the story of two brothers as they move from Algeria to France and to Taiwan. When the younger brother passes away suddenly at a military academy, their surviving sibling spends the next years organizing a funeral and standing against the system. That is the real-life story of Rashid Hami and his brother Jalal, who passed away in 2012 at the age of 24. He died from a hazing incident one month into attending the prestigious military academy Sansia. Prior to his death, the two brothers spend their final days together in Taiwan. For My Country, partly shot in Taiwan, premiered at the Venice Film Festival late last year. It opens in a theater in Taiwan on September 28th. Welcome back to Taipei, Rashid. Hello, how are you? So the first thing she told me when I arrived is I'm sometimes in and out of my mic, so I just want to apologize to the listeners right away and to say to Emily that I'm very happy to be back、uh, on her podcast today. Thank you for coming back to us.、Um, the first time we spoke to you was two years ago. We had you on with the French office in Taipei. Yes, and the two actors, Shaheen and Karim,、uh, were also present in, in here on your podcast. So let's start from the beginning, which is、uh, the beginning of your film for my country, Pour la France. Your film opens with the death of your brother. It's October in Brittany at Saint Cyr, a military academy founded by Napoleon. It's the middle of the night. First-year cadets are woken up and made to swim across a pond wearing full gear. So this is a so-called hazing tradition.、Um, that night, the water was just nine degrees Celsius. And that was how your brother passed away in 2012. And in real life, your family didn't see a trial for your brother until eight years later. And of the seven soldiers and a colonel on trial, only three received prison sentences. You were set to have expressed your disappointment in the justice system and in the judge for betraying your brother. Was this why you made the film? Was this telling his story in your perspective and in your memory of him a way of finding justice? Um, first of all, I want to add a small detail that will make my disappointment more understandable and vivid for your audience. To be honest,、uh, I was not just disappointed by the time these people have been sentenced to six to twelve months of jail that they will not make. We call that it's probation jail. But this is not what pissed me off, to be honest,、uh, because it's something that I was already expecting to happen. The real thing that、uh, has been perceived by my family and I as、uh, a betrayal is the fact that those sentences, as soon as they have been pronounced by the judge, he added one subtle sentence that those things will be not written down into the criminal files of these guys. So. It will be like okay, you have been sentenced, you are guilty, but we are not going to written this down into your criminal file because we want you to have a future. <laughs> And I found that a bit sour, in a way that my brother's death is engraved in his tombstone, and their sentences don't even appear in their criminal records. Those two contradictions felt like a betrayal by the system for me. You know, I, I grew up with the feeling that injustice is something that is extremely hard to swallow. So to be honest, there is seven people who have been tried, and I sincerely think there is two people that were innocent that shouldn't be here. You know, 
They shouldn't have been trialed at all. They should have been spared this public humiliation. However, there's five people that are highly responsible. And just as a matter of fact, to give you an idea of one of the persons that have been not recognized guilty, the guy who was in charge of security, of safety of this activity, his job was safety. This guy has been not sentenced. So at the end of the day, the betrayal has really to do with the fact that first, sentences were not written down on their criminal record. And second, because two people who have a big responsibility didn't have been recognized guilty of their action. The trial was covered heavily in the French media at the time in 2020. But in the film, you didn't actually show the trial. How come? Because I think, uh, first of all, for my country, it's not a story of revenge or justice. For my country, it's a, it's a family odyssey. You see, it's like, uh, how today can we tell the story of people that we treat like news or statistic into something that is more novelesque, more cinematographic, giving them the ability to be cinema characters, to be story characters, more than just news stories or, you know, those two minutes like, oh, today this guy did this or that on the news. Uh, I just wanted to finally escape this stereotype trap that we have been thrown in for the past 20 years. Because I feel like as much as uh, there is a huge fight ongoing worldwide to give space to minorities because France is finally, I think in some kind of way, understanding that they have to live with their colonial past. And so, therefore, we are part of this past and we are mostly part of the present of France. Nobody is wondering who is French when we see the French uh, soccer team win the World Cup. There is no question about that. But here we are, each year, there's something happening. And uh, I think it's very important to not fall into, first, us, the trap of the stereotype, and also to not fall into the easy answers. Like a few months ago, France has uh, known very heavy uh, riots because of the death of a young kid who was driving illegally. First of all, he was driving illegally. Okay, arrest him. Bring him to justice. But since when are we allowed to kill someone? Since when killing became an answer to any kind of situation? So this story is interesting for one reason. is the fact that it has nothing to do with mine. This guy have been shot by an overzealous policeman with some racist background. And he represents like maybe 5 or 10% of the police where the, you have 90% of people who are doing their job right, trying to make a living like everyone, who have small salaries, trying to go by each month. When you see the riots and I hear like, oh, they are ghetto people, they are Arabic people, they are black people. And I'm like, no, they are French people. We have learned since we are kids that burning cars and turning around a city and destroying everything is the way to get your demands heard. Like give you an example. We grew up by seeing like May 68, those big riots done in France by white people, bourgeois people for their rights. They are all white and they are burning down Paris. <laughs> and they tell us, you see, they are fighting for their rights. This is what you should do. And the French Revolution was what? Was the same thing. So we grew up by understanding that violence and destroying things around is the way in France to get yourself hurt. And I think it's a profound French reaction. 
And that's why it's important to put things in perspective. That was a racist crime in some ways. That was uh, uh, something that is very disgusting that happened to this young kid in this car. That's why you have these reactions. In our case, it's not what we have went through. That's why the difference is important to put. My brother was part of the army. He was wearing this uniform. And it's not a fight between an Arabic family coming from the ghetto against an institution. It's more complicated than that. It's inside this institution. This night, any kid could have died. Do you know if the tradition still exists today? Oh, no. No, because it's the beauty, you see? Tradition still exists in the army, but there's a big difference between tradition and hazing. And I think this is where we have to be very clear. Uh, what happened this night was hazing. It was not tradition. And I think uh, now in Saint-Cyr, since uh, Jadal passed, it was a profound trauma for the whole institution. It was a profound trauma for the people there. And they changed the rules. So now you have uh, like an officer that is here as an observer, just observing them, making sure things go the right way. And if anything goes wrong, he will intervene. So the first thing is that when Jalal was in Sancerre, this thing was not in place. Those kids were really having all power on their cameras, which is insane to me. In writing a film like this, and you directed it. In the film, there is an actor and another actor who's playing you and your brother. How do you separate between grief and anger? But first of all, the first thing uh, we have to keep in mind is I am uh, always angry. It's like I'm angry against the world. I'm angry every morning. I'm angry. I'm, I'm angry because I'm frustrated, okay? So this is a part of, of my persona in some way and sometimes even my drive. But when I'm doing a movie, this like superficial anger that comes from small frustration doesn't play any role in it. I'm trying to find the right measure. I think today finding this um, ability to not go extreme is what requires the most, the biggest amount of strength. Because we are in a very polarized world right now. Everything is black and white and, and me, I grow up thinking the world is very gray. So you see, when I write this movie, I don't have any anger in it. I'm trying to find the right place to be as honest as possible because I think the best criticism are the ones that uh, can change the perception of others. Each year when someone like me make a movie, we say, oh, this is a banlieue movie. We are, we, there's maybe three banlieue movies. Even if they don't happen in banlieue, because we are coming from there, we still are a banlieue movie. Can you explain that term for us? Um, banlieue. Banlieue is the, is the suburbs of Paris. And the suburbs of Paris are very different from the suburbs of America, where suburbs are for rich people and downtown is for the rest. In Paris, is pretty much reversed. It's like uh, the suburbs is where we have parked in some kind of way all those uh, migrant workers that uh, they brought from Africa after the Second World War to rebuild France. So they build like those big housing projects where they park them in the beginning and say, okay, we're going to do that for the moment, but we're going to integrate them. But this integration project never happened. And I think this uh, integration project has been destroyed by, by the deindustrialization of France. It's like you come in France in the 60s, 50s, in 50s, 60s, 70s, you have industries, you have like those migrants that don't need to think too much because we give them a job, we give them a situation and uh, you don't have those issues because at 
those people have a dignity. But with time, we took our industries out to different places around the world, especially one. And, uh, and you have created like unemployment and you are in a situation where, of course, those people have to find a way to survive. So crime starts to rise because crime is just, uh, when I see crimes, <laughs> I have a problem with this world. It's not crime. I think people try to survive in their way. Like, and I think the government is very happy to have them survive on their way. Because if you want to eradicate crime, it's very easy. That's the bon You were born in Algeria. Mm-hmm. And in 1993, shortly after the Algerian Civil War started, your mother brought you and your brother to France, mm-hmm. to Paris, to... Uh, Pierrefit. Pierrefit, 10 kilometers north of Paris. You were seven years old at the time and your brother was four. Eight, I was eight and you was five. Tell us about what it was like to grow up in that neighborhood. Uh, let's put aside all the cliché. It was, uh, I think there's many things that were amazing. Mm. I mean, there's things that happened in those uh, places that uh, really shaped the way I see the world. I can tell you a story. Uh, when we arrived in Pierrefit, we are very uh, poor because my mom had to buy a store. So she bought a, a toy store because it was the only way for her to get her residency at the time. So she put all her savings and she gave birth to my last brother a month later after we arrived. It went very fast and people there were very helpful. It was a feeling to be in a small village with everyone trying its best to help you out in those difficult times. And I think the solidarity I learned from this place, the value of friendship and how this friendship is expressed has shaped my mind for ever. What did your, what would you do with your brothers? We went a lot to watch movies. I, I mean, uh-huh. watching movies is a very big thing. Mm-hmm. I was going to Saint-Denis. It was close by. And I was watching movies at uh, L'Ecran. It's a small indie, like art house uh, theater. And I was going to Gaumont, which was a commercial theater. And we spent a lot of time playing soccer, doing all sorts of things. And I think one of the most important things we did It was not with my brothers, but with my friends. It was the last year of high school, the two last years. We shot a short story together. And this is how I started as a director. This short story was was shot with pretty much very little things, you know. And uh, we sold it to TV network named Arte. Very like known for their support to cinema. There was um, in our previous podcast interview with you. You talked about a story of uh, when you were in middle school and you told your friends that you wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, some of them laughed and said, "Well, it's it's more realistic to be a plumber." It's not my friends who said that. Huh? Just let's put that in perspective. It's my teachers. <laughs> My friends and I, we, we, you know, my <laughs> friends are like, like, if you talk about the banlieue, the banlieue is made of dreamers mm. and they have all dreams. And you know what? I see them fighting to make them real, you know? So you will never see someone clipping your wings in this kind of places, but teachers mm. who have like certain, certain bitterness about their own existence sometimes can do that. For, uh, for my country, it was partly shot back in the old neighborhoods. What was it like bringing the film crew there and trying to recreate how you grew up? We, we shot just, you know, in Saint-Ouen uh, because the movie takes place in between Saint-Ouen and, and Paris, where the army is. But shooting in Saint-Ouen was amazing, very easy. Uh, we have a lot of support from local, like uh, the City Hall and, and the cinema mission there. Just being home, you know, because I left Saint-Ouen in 2015. So it's not that long ago. So my connection with the city is very deep.
If you have enjoyed the Taiwan Take and would like to support Ghost Island Media, we take monthly donations on Patreon. We're at patreon.com/taiwan. And please give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This helps other people find the show. All right, thank you, and back to the show. Um, in 2015, you were in the middle of moving back and forth between Taiwan and Paris. Oh, it's, it's, it's true. 2015 is exactly the date. Um, the first time you came to Taiwan was when you were visiting your brother, who was in Taida. He was studying Mandarin here as a part of his studies at Science Po. Mm-hmm. Um, that was about two years before he passed away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you spent three weeks here in Taipei. A, a little bit uh, less, but not far. Yes. Thinking about that first trip to Taiwan, what was the Taiwan that he wanted to present to you? What was it that he wanted you to experience and understand about his life? I think my brother, when he saw me coming, he, he was. Uh not uh, very excited about it, <laughs> so let's say it this way. And uh, I think he didn't try to present me anything. Uh-huh. It's me that came to to see him, and I think it was more like me trying to find a way to get close to him. And we found this in Taiwan. I think we became brothers in Taiwan. And uh, before that, our relationship was pretty complicated. And what I remember of this first experience, to be quite honest with you, is I have been struck. By how little my understanding of the world was, you know. So it's 2010. I'm, I'm 25 years old. Because seeing people here, mm. you realize that everything you have known so far is just that small. It's super small in comparison of like different way to live, different way to see the world, different way to experience life. And I have been very struck by this very big contradiction that I feel in Taipei. Until now, there is a huge contradiction. Is this mix of looking forward, so of modernity, and a very traditional society at the same time? Hmm. What did you see that was in common? What did you? What what really resonated with you? Colonial past resonated a lot for me. You know, when I sit with my Taiwanese friends and I, I tell them, you know, the identity crisis a lot of Taiwanese go through is uh, the same for us because you see, my I'm Algerian. I'm born in Algeria. Uh, my mom is born in Algeria in 1949, and so she's born when Algeria is France. Algeria doesn't exist as a, as a country; it's just a colony of France. So the French uh, leave after the Algerian War in '62, and here we are. What is your identity? You have learned to speak French. You went to school in France. Your all education is French, and now we are trying to tell you you are Arabic. So you don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> So you see, and at the end you go back to France, and you are French. Or what are you? You know. So this question of who I am, and I think I saw it many times with Taiwanese people. When you ask a Taiwanese person about its identity, it's really interesting because it <laughs> it starts to be funny. Nobody is able to answer clearly this question, and I think we are in the same case because Taiwan uh, was a Japanese colony. You know, when I meet the grandparents of some of my friends. Mm-hmm. They speak Minhua, mm-hmm. Hakka, mm-hmm. and Japanese. Mm-hmm. So you know it says something about the the history of the place. And for me, that was my first like understanding. Is Taiwan is like a bit like all those African countries wandering about its place in the world. 
looping back on identity a little bit and bringing it back to your film, which I want to ask you about the title of the film. It's called Pour la France in French, mm -hmm. but in English, it gets translated to For My Country. Yes. What does that mean for you in terms of identity to a place, to a history? When I call it for France, Pour la France, it means many things because For My Country, for me, is closer to this idea. A translation is never literal to me. It's about the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. Pour la France means someone who falls for France, tombé pour la France, who is ready to die for France, is ready to kill for his country, and is pretty much sacrificed by his country. So for me, when I did this title in French, it was linked to very clear understanding by the French population. When they hear pour la France, they hear falling for it, or they can hear this is for uh, pour la France. And translating it into English, I thought it was very important to not limit the symbolism of the title. If I put France in it, a lot of people will be excluded. But if I put for my country, when someone will try to ask himself about his country, is he ready to die for his country? Is he ready to kill for his country? What is he ready to sacrifice for his country? You know, and I think this is very important when you have an international title to open it to the audience, to wonder about their commitment and what they are ready to do for their country when it's the title of the movie. Well, how would you describe your relationship with your country? This is the beauty of my situation. Uh, you know, some people are questioning themselves about having, uh, being polygamistic, having open relationship. It's what I have with France because I have two countries. I have two passports. I'm French and Algerian, so by nature, I have like this double, this double relationship with countries, <laughs> but I'm deeply French. In many ways, I have grown up in France. I've been educated by French. I found safety in France. I found a future in France. All of those things that I couldn't find in Algeria, uh, because in Algeria, it's very interesting to put it this way. We escaped during the war, the civil war. It was not safe. It was uh, scary. It was a place of chaos. When, when I see people of my generation, most of them have been really sacrificed by those 10 years of bloody civil war, you know. I can say I love my country. I love France. But I will always fight in a way that is uh, far from stereotype to make it better. And uh, what I do for my country is what I say. It's time for you to understand we are French. We are part of this country. We are here as much as you are here and you have to give us the space needed to finally become the citizen that we aspire, all of us aspire to be. Do you find that people look to you as, a, as an Algerian French filmmaker? Is there pressure of needing to represent? First of all, I don't really care about their label, but I am trying to move this. I want to be seen as an artist. I want to be seen as a filmmaker. I'm not a politician. I'm not a sociologue, you know, uh, sociologist, sorry. I am a, a movie maker. By all means, I think for me, the first step is for the system to understand that we are artists and we are not messengers or we are not here to, to denounce something or to show how difficult it is. No, we are here to tell stories. We are here to be expressing our feelings and our vision of the world through cinema or through music or through painting or through whatever form of art you have. We are, before anything, we are artists. And the fact that we come from this environment shouldn't 
label us and limit us to that. Mm -hmm. So every time I talk about this movie, I want to say I'm fighting for my right to be an artist. The dispute I had with some people with this movie is they expect a movie that will be against friends, that will be full of anger. But anger is already, anger is in the past. Today is bitterness that we are living in. We just see how anger failed to make us move forward. So we have to show the reality. We started this interview a lot talking about there's the anger that you feel as a person, and then there's how you project it or not in your art. And film critics have commented that it was in uh, the French newspaper Le Monde. They describe your film as refusing to give in to anger. Or Slate.France also commented that instead of anger, the film is with nuance and melancholy. For them, is like the movie needed to be more angry to find its true strength. And I think it's, this is the true weakness of, of this vision. And I think this is where it's interesting because Le Monde was one of these, like, they were devised on these specific questions. And in the coverage we had, I saw it. Usually you talk with one person or, and you have them doing that thing. Now I talked with many people because it was a huge conversation. And I think just the conversation that has been brought by this specific question of falling into anger or not is by all means the reason why I make a movie is, you know, is it brings conversation. It brings the debate. And all of a sudden, when we get out of the stereotypes, it creates debate. For my country, it took me six years. And I think that's because we wanted to find the most honest way to depict this moment yeah. and to actually break the stereotypes I'm seeing. And not just on Arabic people. I mean, the, the, the stereotypes are also hitting the military. I'll give you an example that I think is very interesting. In the movie, we have uh, the General Kayar, who is personated by Laurent Lafitte. And this is, this is the general of Saint-Cyr at the time. And he was defending my brother. And he was a soldier. He was a military. He was uh, higher up, you know. And this guy have been pretty much punished by the general staff. What is interesting is we are showing a, a soldier, a French general, a Christian general, fighting for this kid, fighting for Jalal. And all of a sudden, this vision is destroying the, <laughs> the operating system of many people, you know. is In their brain, the military are supposed to be the, the evil guys. And all of a sudden, the vision we have on the military becomes more complicated. Mm -hmm. We see the internal struggle they have to find the right answer. Because even in their world, things are not black and white. And showing this man fighting for Aisha in the movie and what happened in reality for Jalal is for me showing this nuance inside the system. This is like the most critical part of the movie. And I think some critics didn't see it clearly. And maybe it's me that is not clear enough. But the army didn't miss it because I talked with some people in the army and they didn't miss it at all. They saw it and they were like, oh, the movie is very harsh with us. And the critics, oh, the movie is not harsh. No, no, the movie is very harsh with them because the guy that act in the most righteous way, the guy that has honor, that was fighting for the kid who lost his life, this guy is punished. The army is punishing the righteous people. They hit their own, even in the high ranks of the military. And we show it. Has the general seen the film? Yes, and he called me. I was like, thank you. He thanked me because he felt like I have been fair to him. And many other military called me because they felt like I have been fair to the system. You see, it's the contradictions. It's like we are forgetting 
Jalal was one of them. So he belongs to the army in some ways too. So this is where all these nuances come from. It's very different from many cases we heard of. This time is about a kid that have been that has lost his life not because someone tried to kill him, but because a hazing took place, something illegal took place. And the people in the army, most of them were not aware of what was really happening this night. And I think everyone felt a part of responsibility in Jalal's death. And every one of them tried to find the best way to deal with it. This is such a personal film. How much control do you have over marketing and distributing the film? Okay, this is a very interesting question. I never heard it before. <laughs> so it's going to be the first time I will answer it. I think no matter which movie I do, be it personal or not, it still is a movie, you know? And there is two important things that take place. The first one is, is the movie good or not? And after is how to sell it. And I think every time we are confronted to how to sell it, uh, we have divergent point of view that hit each other. And sometimes I am at odd with maybe how things are done. I'm at odd, but I understand them. If this is what you think is the right way to do it, go ahead, guys. And I will never go against them because at the end of the day, they trust me to make the movie, I should trust them to set it. That's the part of, okay, what is the synopsis, what is the pitch, what is the trailer, what is the poster. So except if there's something that really bothers me, and it happened many times, one sentence that bothers me about uh, uh, one shot that bothers me or something. These things usually are solved. This is very minimal. But I will never go against the whole, like the people I work with are doing, even if I'm not totally comfortable with. Because at the end of the day, I meet the media. I say what I want to say. I do what I want to do and they give me this freedom and I give them the freedom to also do what they have to do. And this is what I think some wisdom is needed from all parts to work together on a movie. And for my country, I have worked with amazing people. We had this amazing relationship from beginning to end. For instance, the poster in France is, was like something we talked about a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, because it's so hard to make for a movie like that. Three parts, the story of the past, the army and, and the family. I'm very happy of the poster. It's the uh, the two brothers on profile and then and another silhouette with a hat. Yes, exactly, because it, it tells the story. This is the shadow of the military of, of those two brothers, this family pretty much. And I think this poster had like this quality that is really made for French audience. You see, that's why when I came here to for the release, I was like, okay, guys, we have to do a poster for Taiwan, a different one, because I don't think it's the same thing at all. It's not the same audience, don't have the same understanding. And the Arabic people did their own posters. It's about Algeria, that part of the film. You shot it in Morocco in place of Algeria. Well, because of COVID. Uh, in Algeria, it was a, a bit of a shit show during the, the COVID. People were really going nuts in Algeria. And really weird things were happening. So I'll give you a story. Someone went to see his cousin, 20-kilometer city. And then we cannot get out anymore. So he's stuck in his cousin's house without being able to get out. And they say, no, no, no matter where you are, you don't move. So really weird things were happening in Algeria, first of all. And I wanted to shoot in Algeria, really. It was my, my desire, my, my priority. But we start to struggle with this COVID situation. And there's another thing happening, is I was looking for kids. And, and I wanted to take the kids in Algeria, you know, because, okay, let's take Algerian kids. But in the 90s, we all used to speak French super well because we don't have the same history as the kids of today. But 30 years later, those kids pretty much don't speak French. 
So you are okay. So I have to find a kid that speaks super well in French because it's the 90s were like that. So I had to take them in France ultimately. So we start to look at kids in France. I found those two kids and uh, we start to work with them. And I go see uh, Dadas. Dadas is the, the protection for children in, in France. <laughs> and they're like, you know, no, no, Algeria is no way. <laughs> and uh, so Morocco is fine. If my producer, you think I'm going to let you go to Algeria during COVID with kids? Are crazy? I was like, yes, I want to go there. But nobody wanted to follow me, which makes sense. So how was it marketed? What's the story in the Arabic point of view? In Taiwan, the poster is of the brothers. I think the the way they, they market it in Arabic countries is uh, mostly uh, a movie about uh, mourning. In many ways, I think they are more comfortable of, with the idea of death in Arabic countries. It's very interesting. In Asian countries, there is nothing more scary than death. For me, traveling between countries, I, I see the different perspective, you know. For them, it's very hard to understand why an Arabic guy is defending democracy and the Republican idea of France. You see, this is something that is very alien to them. I had talks with them because, you know, the movie in each territory has opened in different film festivals. In Arabic country, we opened at Cairo Film Festival and I had like this conversation, Q&A with the audience. It's like, but we don't understand why an Arabic soldier will fight for France. But he's not Arabic, he's French. Okay, but he's Arabic. Uh, yes, but he's French. And as usual, I take always the same example. Zidane. <laughs> Guys, wake up. Belonging to a country has nothing to do with your race or your religion. It has to do with where you belong to, your ideal, your values. I think Arabic countries are still in trauma overall of what happened, like the war against terrorism, uh, the revolution that have taken place in different countries, Arab Springs. And there is this big fight in Arabic country between religion and the idea of freedom. Those two things are not solved yet. And when you are born in the 90s in Algeria, you have been pretty much at the genesis of this uncomfortable situation we are in now, is uh, how Islam has been politicized. Do you think you'll make a film there soon, someday? In Algeria? Mm -hmm. Yes, I wish I can go shoot in Algeria. Algeria is really so beautiful. It's so hard to explain to people because it's it's a close country. There is no tourism. There is like, it's it's almost like now becoming uh, like a fantasy land. But for me, you know, I go every year. I spend time there. Algeria is like what I said, is like I, I am in open relationship with friends <laughs> because I have also my relationship with Algeria. And this is who I am. It's like I am those two things at the same time. France has to start to feel comfortable with the idea that we can be both. And those two things are not contradictory because we choose to live in France. We choose to study in France, to have our family in France. You know, we are French, but you cannot remove our roots. You know, it's like those roots have to be like part of who we are. Sometimes I miss Algeria. Like right now, I'm, I, I want to go to Algeria. Maybe I will go this October, spend a, a week or two. I really miss it. I, I really miss it, yes. You've talked about in the past of working with the crew and cast in Taiwan, and actually you've stayed even after filming For My Country and now releasing it. Um, you're working with the actor again. Uh, tell us about that and, and some of the projects you have going forward. I mean, for me, Taiwan is... Um, I have a family relationship with Taiwan. 
I feel like many people are part of my family and Taiwan is like a, a third home for me. Uh, you know, after I worked on for my country, I came here. I shot last year uh, a small uh, short for Cinex and uh, Taiwan Plus. They gave me uh, like the possibility to do something for myself, and I was very happy to have no pressure and just do some images. And we shot that, and it was on Taiwan Plus uh, this winter. And now I came back again the la last spring with Karim Leclou. We came here to work with Taiwanese people on a Taiwanese project. To us, like, we felt very honored to be invited by Taiwanese people to come and shoot this movie with them. Uh, it's the movie that will do the closing of The Golden Horse this year. It's uh, 10 directors, 10 stories, 10 short movies produced by Amy Ma and uh, Boyd Tseng. And in the future, maybe I will come back to shoot in Taiwan. There is nothing uh, that is uh, set in stone. Uh, the, you know, there is still a relationship going on here. It's about what story I'm making. And, so, and that, uh, for the moment, I don't know which one I will do. Well, thank you so much for all you shared today. Where do people look up pictures from Algeria from you in October? Your your Twitter, your Instagram, your Facebook? Oh, you see, uh, my life on social media is pretty limited. I sometimes post things related to my work on Twitter. It's the only place where I, I post a bit, but I never post anything about my life. So nobody knows where I am and what I'm eating. <laughs> but I can swear to you, I'm always in nice places and I'm eating very well, especially here in Taiwan. Okay, so for those photos of Algeria, we'll have to wait until your movie that's shot in Algeria. Oh, no, I will send them to you just on WhatsApp. Perfect. You'll get them, don't worry. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. Thank you so much, Emily, to have uh, got me here today. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing everything. Um, for My Country opens at the theaters in Taiwan in September. Congratulations. Emily. Look forward to the next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. This has been a Ghost Island Media production based in Taipei, Taiwan. This episode was produced and edited by me, Emily Waiwu. Kara Ganago is our research assistant with additional research by Min Chao. We recorded this at the Future Work co-working space in Taipei. If you are a French listener, do head over to our podcast series with a French office in Taiwan. It's called Ballade Culturelle Franco-Taiwanese, where you will find the conversation with Rashid and two main actors from the film. I'll have those links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>